Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. It's set to be another lively week in the impeachment investigation into US President Donald Trump. And I'll be talking shortly to our Washington correspondent, Suzanne Lynch, about what to expect in the days ahead. But we'll also be looking back and listening to some of the dramatic moments of last week's testimony. Suzanne was in the room for the hearings on Capitol Hill, and I'll be asking her to describe the atmosphere for us and to analyse those key moments from the testimony to date. But first this week is to a story closer to home, the British election, and Dennis Staunton, our London editor, is on the line. Dennis, we're speaking early on Tuesday afternoon, and the focus now is on tonight's first TV debate of the election campaign. Just the two protagonists, Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn, who would you say has more to lose and who has more to gain from tonight's debate? I think all the risks really are on Boris Johnson's side because he's miles ahead in the polls. And in fact, uh, if the current polls were to carry on, then he'd be on course to win a majority. And also, this isn't really the best format for him. He's better in front of a big crowd of his admirers. Jeremy Corbyn has most to gain because he has a chance to uh, to give the public an opportunity to give him another look. At the moment, they don't like him. And uh, so the only way is up as far as he's concerned. And also, also, he has an opportunity to shift the focus of the debate from Brexit onto other issues. And then where Brexit is concerned, what he'll be trying to do is to make his message on Brexit more uh, acceptable and more attractive to the kind of voters he needs to get. Is there anything we should be watching out for, Dennis? Uh, anything uh, during the debate that might tell us something about the direction the campaign is likely to take in the, in the days ahead? Yes, I think what you should look out for particularly is what Jeremy Corbyn says about Brexit. At the moment, the, uh, the, you know, the Labour policy is ambiguous enough that the idea is that they want to try to be able to appeal to leave voters and to remain voters. But the problem is that the ambiguity is not appealing to either. And it looks as if Jeremy Corbyn is now more vulnerable in remain voting seats and particularly among remain voters who might be tempted to go off to the Liberal Democrats. And so I think what uh, we uh, we might see this evening, or at least it's an option for him, would be for him to tilt f- more towards uh, a more overtly Remain position. And so I think that's one to watch. Um, TV debates, Dennis, and, and debates about the debates, you know, who should take part and so on, they're a staple part of every election. But how much difference do you think they can make in determining the outcome? I think they can make a difference. Uh, The the most uh, famous recent one was uh, when there was a three-way debate between uh, David Cameron and Gordon Brown and Nick Clegg. And Nick Clegg uh, was in the middle and they all kept saying, I agree with Nick. And uh, there was then a bout of so-called Clegg mania, which uh, didn't actually uh, do the the Liberal Democrats all that much good in terms of of the share of the vote that they got. But they did did win more seats. And it, it may be that they just lost that poll lead later on in the campaign, but it does give uh, particularly the underdog a chance to, uh, you know, in some way change the momentum of the campaign. And this now this week is coming uh, ahead of Labour's launch of its manifesto on Thursday. And that was in 2017 a crucial moment in uh, in that campaign where suddenly people did start to look at Labour a bit differently. So it does have that uh, possibility. It also, of course, has, uh, you know, there is a possibility that people uh, do something 
something wrong, they slip up. And that's particularly, obviously, uh, a difficulty for the front runner. And that suddenly people who uh, have decided for, for now that they quite like Boris Johnson, they just might see a side of him they don't like. And it was interesting, yesterday, both Boris Johnson and, Der- and Jeremy Corbyn made speeches to the Confederation of British Industry. And uh, although none of the people there are going to vote for Jeremy Corbyn, most of them seem to agree that he was more persuasive than Johnson was. And they felt that Boris Johnson's jokey tone was a bit off. And so you could find that, uh, you know, that Boris Johnson hits exactly the right tone, but maybe he doesn't. So I think it is one of those few moments in the debate where the campaigns aren't really in control of it. And of course, the questions... Um, They don't know about them in advance. And in tonight, a lot of the questions are going to have been sent in by the public. And Dennis, I think it's an hour-long debate. Half an hour has been devoted to to Brexit. How successful is Jeremy Corbyn uh, proving so far in trying to shift the focus of this campaign away from Brexit, which is an issue that's seen as not very favourable, really, to to the Labour Party? Labour has been both lucky and successful uh, for for quite a, a bit of the campaign so far and that the main headlines have not been about Brexit. Now, of course, in the last few days, they've mostly been about Prince Andrew, but still, at least that's not Brexit. But I think the problem that he's going to have tonight is that the first half hour is about Brexit. And so it may be that by the time uh, you know, uh, the viewers have got through half an hour of him uh, dissembling or at least obfuscating on Brexit, that they may have turned off him by the time he gets to the point where he gets onto more comfortable territory for him. Now, Jeremy Corbyn may not be Boris Johnson's only concern or even primary concern this week, Dennis. At the weekend, we witnessed the return to the fray of Jennifer Arcuri. Maybe just remind us uh, who Jennifer Arcuri is and why she was in the news in the first place. She's an American businesswoman who had a friendship of some kind, we don't know exactly what kind, with uh, Boris Johnson uh, when he was mayor of London. And her, uh, the reason that, uh, that she's really in the news is because there's an investigation into whether he broke uh, conflict of interest rules by allowing her to come on various trade trips and also that she received some sponsorship from a fund that was under the authority of the mayor's office. And so uh, she's popped up again for a round of interviews where she's being rather coy about the nature of their relationship. But she did say that she thought that he ought to have declared his friendship with her as a a potential conflict of interest. And uh, this, I think, could be a problem for him this evening because I think it's pretty certain, given that she's just been in the news, that he'll get some question on this. And this, of course, raises issues uh, to do with his private life more generally and his uh, and his character. And these are the kinds of questions that uh, voters tend to pay attention to because they're a bit more interesting than most policy areas. But, but the electorate in Britain, they seem to almost have priced in the fact that Boris Johnson um, has a pretty dodgy record when it comes to relationships and, and dealing with people close to him. Yeah, I think it's in some ways a bit like uh, Donald Trump. The people who like him don't care and the people who care don't like him anyway. And so in that sense it probably doesn't make all that much difference. I think where it might possibly make some difference at the margins is in women voters because uh, uh, you know, his, he's got a higher approval rating among men than among women. And if things are tight, then that's the kind of gap that uh, could make a difference. And women tend to uh, to, to sometimes uh, be more disapproving of uh, of Boris Johnson's behaviour than men are. And so it, it, it's something that, uh, as you say, a lot of it is baked in. But again, it depends partly on how he answers it and how he appears when he's answering those questions. And Dennison, in terms of the state of play of the campaign generally, uh, opinion polls 
and so on. Um, what are they telling us? Has, has a definite pattern taken hold yet? Well, the pattern that's taken hold is that uh, the, those Conservative Leave voters that went over to the Brexit Party, they're almost all gone home now to the Conservatives. And so the Leave vote is coalescing around the Conservatives and the Remain vote remains split between Labour and the Liberal Democrats. Labour is rising, the Conservatives are rising more, the Liberal Democrats are, are appear to be softening a bit and the Brexit Party is going backwards quite a lot. So at the moment it looks like if... Um, if Jeremy Corbyn can't get more of those Remain voters to go to Labour rather than to the Liberal Democrats, then he's not going to have any chance of uh, denying Boris Johnson his majority. OK, Dennis, well, you're about to catch a, a train to Manchester for that debate, so we'll, we'll leave it there for now and no doubt talk to you next week. You know, consulting firms are like onions. Layer after layer after layer after layer. You just don't get the answer or the person you need. You just get irritation. Ready for an approach with less bureaucracy? Welcome to Grant Thornton Audit Tax and Advisory. It's not status quo, it's status go. Thanks again to Dennis Thornton, our London editor. And Dennis's election diary appears every morning on irishtimes.com. Well, as we speak, it's set to be another big day in the impeachment hearings into US President Donald Trump. And I'm joined now by our Washington correspondent, Suzanne Lynch. Suzanne, public hearings in the impeachment inquiry started last week. And I don't know if we learned very much new, but we did learn some new things. And there were some really dramatic moments. And and we're going to listen back to a few of them and get your take on them. Before we do, could I ask you for just a quick reminder of where we're at in the impeachment process? And, And for those who are at the back of the class, this is your chance to catch up, everybody, why Donald Trump is facing impeachment in the first place. Yes, well, last week, uh, the first phase of public hearings, these were live televised hearings, began in the uh, impeachment inquiry. Democrats opened the impeachment inquiry uh, into Donald Trump back in September after the White House released released the transcript of a phone call between Trump and the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky. Uh, They released that detail and then Nancy Pelosi announced she was going to start an impeachment inquiry. So lots of witnesses have been coming coming before the committees and have been testifying behind closed doors. But last week, a lot of those witnesses came back who'd already testified and they were now doing it publicly. Um, So we had two days of hearings last week. As I speak to you here now, it's Tuesday morning. I'm about to go into day three. And this week, we're going to have a series, eight or nine people testifying throughout the week who are going to hopefully shed more light on the Trump administration's connections with Ukraine and specifically about that July 25th phone call between Donald Trump and the Ukrainian president, in which he asked the Ukrainian president to investigate Joe Biden, the former vice president, and his son Hunter. And this is at the heart of the impeachment inquiry. Um, There are concerns that Donald Trump effectively asked a foreign government to investigate a political rival because Joe Biden is uh, running for the Democratic nomination for president. Now, the first public hearings, as you said, that there, Suzanne, took place last week. And the first witness up was Bill Taylor, the the acting U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. Now, the Democrats who have a majority in the House of Representatives, they have control of this process at this stage. So they obviously called Bill Taylor first for a reason. They, they, they see him presumably as a key witness. Yes, Bill Taylor was one of the key people in this impeachment probe from the outset. He was, uh, he's currently the acting ambassador to Ukraine, and he effectively took that job on when Marie Jovanovic, uh, the ambassador, was recalled early by the Trump administration. Um, so his original testimony, his private testimony, got quite a lot of publicity because in that he described his 
his disbelief, really, at realising that the Trump administration was withholding military aid to Ukraine uh, in exchange for uh, this invest, these two investigations to be opened, one into Joe Biden and the other into possible interference in the election in 2016 by Ukraine. And he talked a lot about uh, this and about really his experience and his kind of commitment to the Ukraine issue and how this withholding of aid was materially affecting Ukrainian people and was effectively leading to deaths on the front line um, between Ukraine and Russia. So as a result, this was highly anticipated testimony last week. And uh, indeed, the private testimony that he gave was was widely reported, you know, and his concerns about this kind of parallel foreign policy being run in Ukraine. But when he came to give public evidence last week, there was one particular aspect of his evidence that, that people found particularly significant. L- let's hear a bit of that. While Ambassador Volker and I, Volker and I visited the front, this member of my staff accompanied Ambassador Sondland. Ambassador Sondland met with Mr. Yerbach. Following that meeting, in the presence of my staff, at a restaurant, Ambassador Sondland called President Trump and told him of his meetings in Kiev. The member of my staff could hear President Trump on the phone asking Ambassador Sondland about the investigations. Ambassador Sondland told President Trump the Ukrainians were ready to move forward. Tell us, Suzanne, why was that particular piece of evidence considered so significant? Yeah, this is the standout moment from his testimony because, A, we had never heard this before and and, uh, Taylor himself said he'd only been told about this incident by his staff member last Friday, the previous Friday. Um, This is significant because this is somebody in the embassy, an American in the embassy in Kiev, who says he directly heard Donald Trump asking about these investigations and, uh, according to his testimony, uh, suggesting, Sondland suggesting that Donald Trump uh, was very interested in an investigation into Biden. So these are, this is significant in a number of ways. Number one, Republicans have tried to say that uh, Democrats have no direct link to Donald Trump, that these people who are testifying, it's hearsay, it's secondhand, it's thirdhand. But here was Taylor suggesting that we had an individual who said he actually heard Donald Trump saying the words. And second of all, it opens up major questions now for Gordon Sondland, that's the ambassador to the EU, because he's already testified and submitted an amendment to his original testimony, really saying he didn't know that much about the Ukrainian investigations, kind of playing down his links with Donald Trump. This uh, suggestion of this phone call, of course, puts him really at the heart of things. So since uh, Bill Taylor announced this, this uh, official, this aide in the embassy in Ukraine, has testified. He testified here over the weekend. David Holmes is his name. And he talked about, in his testimony, uh, how he remembered, how he recalled this incident. He said it was an extremely distinctive experience in his career in the Foreign Service. That is highly unusual. He said he'd never seen anything like this, someone calling the president from a mobile phone at a restaurant and then having a conversation at this level of candor, this colourful language. Uh, so he, he described um, this phone call memorably and it now looks like he will testify publicly later this week so we should get more details on that. And of course Suzanne one of the interesting I mean I suppose things about Bill Taylor is he's a he's a lifelong or a, a, a long time record of bipartisan public service which is he's a hard target I think for Republicans to attack but we did hear you know last week of course some of the Republican lines of attack let's hear something from Devin Nunes who's the, the ranking Republican member of the, the House Intelligence Committee the more senior Republican member on that committee. After the spectacular implosion of their Russia hoax on July 24th in which they spent years denouncing any Republican who ever shook hands with a Russian. On July 25th, they turned on a dime and now claim the real malfeasance is Republicans' dealings with Ukraine. In the blink of an eye, we're asked to simply forget about Democrats on this committee, 
falsely claiming they had more than circumstantial evidence of collusion between President Trump and Russians. We should forget about them reading fabrications of Trump-Russia collusion from the Steele dossier into the congressional record. We should also forget about them trying to obtain nude pictures of Trump from Russian pranksters who pretended to be Ukrainian officials. We should forget now, about Devin, Devin Nunes had a lot to say for himself there, but what did that mm. tell us about how the Republicans would be approaching this impeachment inquiry? Basically, Republicans are suggesting that this is just a continuation of the Russian inquiry. That Mueller investigation, that probe into Russian interference, effectively didn't exonerate Donald Trump, but it did not lead to impeachment. And it was seen as a very good result for Donald Trump when Mueller uh, reported earlier this year. So Republicans are arguing that this is a Democrat, a politically motivated um, attack on Donald Trump. And that uh, he, at one point, Nunes goes on to say that he described it as this is the low rent sequel to the Russia investigation. But he also, and I think this is what we've been seeing again and again, he's attacking essentially the motivations of a lot of these career foreign service officials, people like Bill Taylor, people like George Kent, who are essentially what we would call civil service. They've worked for the U.S. Foreign Service uh, for decades and under numerous presidents. And what they're, a lot of Republicans are coming onto the stand and saying is that they're essentially what Trump calls never Trumpers, people, a deep state who never really accepted the results of the 2016 election. And, you know, that's their argument about the Russia investigation or the Russian hoax, as Donald Trump called it, that the FBI and a lot of the security services and the foreign services um, were against Donald Trump from the outset and were looking for negative information. We're on a, a witch hunt to find negative information about him. Now, this doesn't seem to be really working as far as we can see so far. People like Bill Taylor, as you mentioned there, has really got impeccable um, career credentials. He served under Republicans, under Democrats. He served in Vietnam. His colleague, George Kent, who testified beside him last Wednesday, spoke about how his father served in the Navy, how his five of his great uncles served uh, in World War II, and really, you know, putting to bed that idea that these guys are in any way politically motivated. But I expect we're going to see a lot more of that line of questioning this week uh, when other officials from the Trump administration and the Foreign Service testify. I think that's the kind of line of argument uh, Republicans are going to continue to take. Now, the witness, Susanna, got the most attention last week, and not just because of what she had to say herself, but for, for other reasons as well, was Marie Yovanovitch, the former ambassador to Ukraine, US ambassador to Ukraine, who was sacked from that post by Donald Trump. Let's hear a little bit from her opening statement. In the wake of the negative press, State Department officials suggested an earlier departure, and we agreed upon July 2019. I was then abruptly told, just weeks later in late April, to come back to Washington from Ukraine on the next plane. When I returned to the United States, Deputy Secretary of State Sullivan told me there had been a concerted campaign against me, that the President no longer wished me to serve as ambassador to Ukraine, and that, in fact, the President had been pushing for my removal since the prior summer. As Mr. Sullivan recently recounted during his Senate confirmation hearing, Neither he nor anyone else ever explained or sought to justify the president's concerns about me, nor did anyone in the department justify my early departure by suggesting I had done something wrong. How did Marie Ivanovich come across Suzanne as a witness? 
Well, I think her testimony was extremely effective for Democrats here on Friday. Um, I think a lot had not been expected from Marie Jovanovich, mainly because all this information, or most of the information, had already been out on the public domain. But the visual power of a woman like Marie Jovanovich uh, testifying in a kind of calm, dignified manner, I think really kind of riveted those in the room and those watching on TV. Um, it became quite obvious as she kind of set out uh, the, the, the timeline of her departure that this is, you know, that has been a, a defining moment of her career. She talked at one point about, you know, in this business, your reputation is everything. And what she explained there, as, as you played, was a concerted campaign by Donald Trump uh, to remove her. Uh, and Rudy Giuliani, the former mayor of New York, and Donald Trump's personal lawyer, was also centrally involved in this. And, of course, I think the question overhanging her testimony is why? Why did Donald Trump want to get rid of the ambassador to Ukraine? What was the problem? Um, and really, the answer to that seems to be, or what Democrats seem to be getting at, is that for some reason they felt that she was trying to block uh, his efforts and Giuliani's efforts to encourage the Ukrainian government uh, to investigate Joe Biden and to investigate allegations, un unfounded allegations, really, of Ukrainian interference in the election. Um, so I think this left huge question marks about Donald Trump's, not only his kind of integrity, but the reasons uh, he had for removing her, because as she said there, she was told she had done nothing wrong by her superiors. And I think one of the most damaging things, I suppose, she had to say or questions she had to ask was, from her perspective, she seems to have been removed um, almost at the behest of people in Ukraine who, in her view and in the view of the Democrats, are not working in the best interest of the United States. Yes, uh, exactly. She, Her job, as she kept saying during this testimony, and, and the U.S. policy was to root out corruption in Ukraine. They were trying to encourage the Ukrainian government um, and the Ukrainian country, if you like, which is going through obviously a very difficult period since the Russian aggression and, and, and incursion into Crimea, uh, to clean up its act in terms of corruption. Uh, so she's saying, obviously, people who are corrupt in that country don't like what she's doing. Uh, and she was not surprised about that. But what she was surprised about was that there were people in the U.S. administration who were willing to agree with them. Uh, and that seems to be her argument here. Uh, and, yeah, she was a very, very persuasive uh, character, a very persuasive professional uh, who I think, you know, in her quiet, you know, as I say, but emphatic demeanor um, rang true to most people who were watching her testimony. And, and then, Suzanne, let's come to probably the, the most dramatic moment of the week when during uh, Mary Ivanovich's testimony, the uh, House Intelligence uh, Committee chairman, Adam Schiff, who's, who's chairing these hearings, um, intervened by reading out a tweet that uh, Donald Trump had, had sent out while she was giving her testimony. As we sit here testifying, the president is attacking you on Twitter. Um, and I'd like to give you a chance to respond. Everywhere Marie Ivanovich went turned bad. She started off in Somalia. How did that go? Uh, he goes on to say later in the tweet, is a U.S. president's absolute right to appoint ambassadors? Well, I, I mean, I don't, I don't think I have such powers, uh, not in Mogadishu, Somalia, Somalia, not in other places. I actually think that um, where I've served over the years, um, I and others have demonstrably um, made things better, you know, for the U.S. as well as for the countries uh, that I've served in. Yeah, this was, un this was undoubtedly the key moment of Friday's testimony. Um, about an hour or so into Marie Jovanovic's testimony, um, Donald Trump tweeted. And he, he tweeted a, a, a really quite aggressive uh, tweet. He was at the White at the time, saying that everywhere Marie Jovanovic went turned bad. 
she started off in Somalia. How did that go? And then talked about her experience in Ukraine. Um, everyone, all the reporters in the room, like myself, were looking at this tweet coming in at real time, knowing that really, obviously, the, the witness who was there uh, giving her testimony wasn't aware of this. And But it's shortly afterwards, or maybe about a half an hour afterwards, Adam Schiff interrupted. He had kind of outsourced his questioning to a lawyer for the Democrats, and he interrupted to to basically inform the witness about this tweet and about this development, uh, as we heard there. And, you know, her response, the, the, the atmosphere in the room was just highly, highly strong. Everyone was peering over to try and glimpse her face. And, you know, her reaction was one, at one point, because at another point in the testimony, the lawyer had said to her, you know, kind of, don't get upset when you're when you're thinking about this. And there had been reports that she had got emotional in her in her in her private testimony. Um, but she pulled, but then, you know, again, she gave a very succinct and dignified response, but she did say it's very intimidating. You know, Schiff was saying, What do you think the president is trying to do here? And she said, well, I can't speak to what he's trying to do, but the effect is to be intimidating. Uh, and um, I mean, this was a hugely dramatic moment that here was the president intervening in this testimony in real time. And that completely dominated then the testimony for the rest of the day, because Schiff, during the break in the testimony, then came out to reporters saying that he was accusing basically Donald Trump of witness tampering and witness intimidation. Now, it doesn't look like Democrats would have a strong enough case to pursue that, but it was evident that he had overstepped the line. Um, afterwards, Ken Starr, people will remember him from the Clinton impeachment. He was a special prosecutor then. He was on Fox News and he said straight away, this is extremely ill-advised. And it was almost like the president could not help himself. Of course, the White House had said he was too busy to be watching the, the testimony. Uh, he evidently was watching this part of it. Uh, later, he was asked about this in the White House and he talked about the, you know, his right to free speech. But it was definitely a very negative move by the president. And even afterwards, very few Republicans were prepared to back him up on this. Uh, and they kind of said, look, we don't want to talk about the tweet. We want to talk about the substance of the testimony. But um, I think it really backfired on Donald Trump. You mentioned there, Suzanne, you were at the hearings last week yourself. You're going back in today to, to hear today's uh, testimony. What's the atmosphere like in the room in general? Is there like a kind of palpable sense that something historic might be happening here? Yeah, just as I talk to you here, I'm standing outside in the corridor and there's a huge queue of people uh, from the public queuing up. Um, last week on the first day, I spoke to somebody who was up at the top of the queue and they'd been in line since 3 a.m. outside the Capitol building here. Um, but yeah, it is a huge... Uh, it, it feels like it's a, it's a historic moment, um, particularly in the, in the opening days. Uh, it's taking place in the Ways and Means Commission room, which is an ornate, you know, columned room. And it looks like a courtroom, essentially, uh, with, with very lush navy and gold curtains and, um, you know, a very kind of formal setting. Uh, but in a way, what, what you have is you've got the journalists along the side, some on desks, and then members of the public at the back. And then we've got members of Congress who've come in and out to witness, members of Congress who are not on the committee. But it's been interesting to see who's been attending those. So Mark Meadows, who's um, a North Carolina uh, member here, he's a strong Trump ally, and he's not on the committee, but he has been here from what I've seen nearly every single day to kind of feel like give moral support to the president. And he's been very vocal with media doing interviews during breaks in the proceedings. But it really is riveting attention here. Um, it, everyone is conscious that next week is Thanksgiving um, and things are going to close down here or usually close down here 
uh, for Thanksgiving. It is possible that public hearings will continue into next week, but at the moment uh, there are no none scheduled. But that could change, and it could be a possibility that this committee could continue working through the Thanksgiving break. But look, at the moment, it seems like it will finish up at the end of this week. And does this week have the potential to be as dramatic as last week? What, what are we expecting? I think so. Um, today, Tuesday, it, it's a packed agenda. Four people are testifying today. And the most interesting probably will be Alexander Vinman. He is the a decorated lieutenant who uh, is a member of, of the national security team. And he listened into the phone call on July 25th. He was born in Ukraine, but moved here as a child and has got an illustrious uh, military career. Um, but he is uh, expressed very deep concern about what he witnessed in the July phone call and also on another meeting on July 10th, which he attended with John Bolton, Gordon Sondland and Ukrainian representatives, in which he effectively said that Sondland asked the Ukrainians to do this investigation. So he's seen as a star witness by Democrats, but already in the last you know, 24 hours, we've seen more Republicans come out and question his patriotism. Is he kind of really a Ukrainian operative inside the White House? And um, I think we're going to be seeing a lot of efforts to kind of smear him, if you like, in the testimony that's starting shortly here. Also, Jennifer Williams, an aide to Mike Pence, but who's effectively a, a career civil service who's been seconded, if you like, into Mike Pence's our, our office. She was also on the call. And then in the afternoon, we're seeing two witnesses who may be more useful to the Republican side. That's Kurt Falker. He's the former special envoy to Ukraine. He was the first person to testify privately here. Uh, and also Tim Morrison. He's a national security aide. And he also has testified about the July 25th phone call. But he has suggested, from what we know from his private testimony, that he didn't see anything that irregular about it. So I think Republican, Republicans are hoping that he will give a kind of an alternative side. Um, but they've even said here privately that they believe because Vinman in particular is up here early, you know, he might take much of the narrative for today. And I think that's going to be the standout moment. And then tomorrow, Wednesday, we're going to hear from Gordon Sondland. He's the key figure here. He's at the centre of all these accusations and allegations of improper in conduct uh, between the Trump administration and, and the Ukrainian government. So it's going to be fascinating to hear what he has to say on Wednesday. Great. And just finally, Susanna, I know you're under pressure to get in there and, and, and grab your seat. Um, just uh, in terms of where we're at again in the process, are we still on schedule then for a House of Representatives vote on the impeachment before the end of the year? Is that kind of the plan yeah, before it goes to the Senate? Uh, yeah. yeah, Nancy Pelosi was asked about this at an interview at the weekend and she kind of um, she avoided the, an a answering this and said, look, no decision has been made on impeachment. This prompted speculation, could this process really go into next year? Um, but we don't know what may happen. A timetable that's possible is that after the Thanksgiving break in early December, the process would then move to the House Judiciary Committee. It has to move to the House Judiciary Committee. They may hold hearings, but they could move pretty quickly on this. That might take a couple of weeks. And then it would go to the full House of Representatives for a vote on whether to impeach Donald Trump. And that could take place before the 20th of December. When that happens and if that happens, then that would move to the Senate and they would hold a trial, which could happen in January. But as I say, it's very unclear the timetable at the moment. For example, even these public hearings this week, as I said, could go into next week. Uh, so look, we, everyone is wondering when this will happen. But I think it's a real push by Democrats to get some kind of vote on this, which really does look inevitable, I think, at this point, before the Christmas break. OK. Well, Suzanne, we'll let you go and grab your, your place there. Thanks for that. And, and that's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now. <laughs>